Well, let us continue in worship this morning by turning to the book of Acts, chapter 14. Acts, chapter 14. This morning we will consider the entire chapter, not in detail necessarily, but uh, most of it. Acts 14, and just for the context, let's read verses 1 through 7. Acts chapter 14, verses 1 through 7. Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelievers, the unbelieving Jews, stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. May the Lord bless the reading of his Holy Word. The Bible constantly puts before us truths that uh, at times seem a bit paradoxical. According to Miller Erickson, a paradox is, quote, an apparent contradiction in which two opposing theses are held in tension with one another. Here are some of the paradoxes of the Christian faith. God is one, and yet he is three in one. Jesus is God, and yet Jesus is, you know this one, yes, wonderful. God is sovereign over all the affairs of man, and yet men are accountable to God for all their actions. Now, due to the severe and the never-ending risk of miscommunication, I need to clarify that these paradoxes are paradoxes only in the sense that when you hold them together, next to each other, they, they create this tension, but it is only in our minds. There are no paradoxes, there are no tensions in the mind of God. One such paradox has to do with a word that is clearly affirmed in the biblical narrative, which can at times be almost simultaneously denied in real life. Let me see if I can trace it for you briefly. 700 years before the coming of the Lord Jesus into this world, the prophet Isaiah prophesied about Jesus and gave him this title, the Prince of Peace. Approximately 200 years later, prophet Zechariah also prophesied of Jesus and said that he shall speak peace to the nations. Now, fast forward to the first century A.D., when the Lord Jesus was finally born in the flesh, the angels showed up and they sang together, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace. You get the point. Peace among those with whom he is pleased. But it doesn't stop there. During his earthly ministry, the Lord Jesus himself said to his disciples things like, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. John 14, 27. 
Clearly then, peace is of the essence of who Jesus is. But here's where the paradox begins. In John 16, 3, Jesus says, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. That statement is immediately followed by, in the world you will have, what? Tribulation. Well then, what do we have? Peace or tribulation? And then consider Matthew chapter 10, verse 34, where Jesus himself says explicitly, Do not think that I have come to bring peace on earth. I have not come to bring peace, but what? A sword. Talk about tension. On the one hand, Jesus is the prince of peace. On the other hand, he did not come to bring peace. So which one is it? And that's the question in your notes. Did Jesus come as the prince of peace? Or did he come with a sword of division? And here's the long extended answer. Are you ready? Yes. Yes. That's it. What I mean by that is the following. When it comes to the Lord Jesus, the world does not stand in neutral toward him. There is always a response, either peace or a sword. That's the paradoxical truth. Now, when you read through Acts chapter 14 and you get to the end of it, you are left feeling the weight of the tension which is intrinsic to this paradoxical truth. And this is descriptive of the Christian life as well, not only of the 14th chapter of Acts. We have the peace that surpasses all understanding, and yet life can be full of turmoil and battle. As the hymn writer Horatio Spafford put it, when peace like a river attendeth my way, followed by when sorrows like sea billows roll. So let us take the next few moments to investigate this truth from Acts chapter 14. My approach will be a bit different in the sense that I won't give you details from each verse. Rather, I will make several observations from the entire chapter and a few points for further med meditation at the end. Here's the first observation. The peace and the sword advance together in the world. The peace and the sword advance together in the world. This is something that you notice quite clearly in Acts chapter 14. As the peace of Jesus increases in the world, his sword penetrates as well. I will seek to define the peace and the sword in the next point. For now, I want to draw your attention to verse 4, which illustrates what I'm saying quite explicitly. But before we read it, remember the context. What is happening? Paul and Barnabas are on their first missionary journey, taking the gospel beyond Palestine. They just left the city of Antioch, the small Antioch in Pisidia, due to persecution. Persecution. And they are now in the city of Iconium, in verse 1. Persecution will then take them into Lystra, where persecution will resume, in verse 6. Much takes place in the city of Lystra, but by the time you get to verse 20, we find Paul and Barnabas preaching in the city of Derbe. 
So clearly what we learn is that persecution only serves to spread the gospel further. So chapter 14 covers Paul's gospel ministry in three different cities and also marks the end of the first missionary journey. In Derby, if you go to verse 21, they turn around and they visit all the cities once again in order to strengthen and encourage the disciples in verse 22. And they will conclude their journey back in Antioch from where they were originally sent. And we, that goes back to chapter 13, verse 1. Now remember this. The Antioch to which they are returning is the Antioch, the big Antioch in Syria, north of Palestine. It was one of the largest cities of the Roman Empire. So the Antioch of verse 21 is the small Antioch that they just passed through on their way back to the big Antioch of verse 26. But chapter 14 begins at Iconium. And just as it happened in small Antioch in Pisidia, at Iconium, Paul and Barnabas entered a Jewish synagogue to preach the gospel. And there were Gentiles in the audience as well, just like in Antioch. The Bible says that God blessed the preaching, and verse 1 says that many believed, both Jews and Greeks or Gentiles. It is looking good. But by the time you reach verse 4, you begin to feel the weight of what's happening. It says in verse 4, but the people of the city, the city of Iconium, were what? Divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. This verse reveals the pattern and sets the tone for the entire chapter. It is, in fact, a great way to describe how truth advances in the world. It moves not just by creating peace, but also by bringing the sword. Because truth does what? I'm going to give you a hint. Yeah, there you go. It divides. Not figuratively, but literally. That's literally what it says in verse 4. They were divided. So let's do an exercise consisting of concentric circles. And we'll start with the smallest circle. And let's call it self. Self. You know yourself. Self. If you think about it, when the peace of the gospel comes into our lives through faith in Jesus Christ, immediately a battle begins simultaneously. We could say it like this. To have peace in Christ means war on sin. To have peace in Christ means war on sin. So the paradox begins in the self. In a somewhat ironic turn, peace means war. So the peace we enjoy in Christ also brings a division, meaning a division between the old self and the new self. As Paul said in Ephesians 4, 24 and 20, 22 and 24, the old self must be put off while the new self must be put on. As you can see, the gospel brings both peace, but also a sword because the putting off of the old self and the putting on on the new only happens as the sword does its work within us. Consider what Paul said in Romans chapter 7, a very well-known passage. Romans 7, 22 and 23 
Paul said this, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members, meaning in my flesh, another law waging what? Waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. All of which leads Paul to the well-known conclusion of verse 24. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? The Prince of Puritans, John Owen, famously said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. The picture could not be more drastic. Killing doesn't happen through passivity. Killing takes much intentionality. But the killing of sin within only happens because we have peace in Christ. And this internal reality, with which we are all very familiar, stands as a proper parable of how both the peace and the sword of Christ advanced in the world. Jesus does two things. He reconciles on the one hand, and he divides on the other hand. And so you can do the same exercise of the concentric circles and go out a bit more and go from the peace and the sword within the self to the peace and the sword in marriage. And from marriage, you can go to the family, and from the family, you can go to other institutions and the culture at large. While peace takes root, sin is cut away. At Iconium, at Iconium we see both peace for those who believed and a sword for those who remained in unbelief. In verse 1, many came to faith, while in verse 5, both Jews and Gentiles wanted to kill Paul and Barnabas. Do you see it? Peace and a sore advancing together. Remember the members meeting that I mentioned last week? I didn't tell you how it ended. It's an interesting ending to the meeting. The chairman of the deacons stood up and in front of the entire assembly said, and I quote, Pastor we know that everything you have said to us is from the Bible, but we will not do it this way. And he said this in front of the entire congregation. No one contradicted him, audibly at least, although some did with their tears. His statement that night was definitive for me. I drew a clear line on the sand, and at that point I ended the meeting, and I resigned on the spot. Jesus brings peace for some and a sword for others. And the apostles knew this. They were grateful for those who believed, but never surprised by those who rejected or even persecuted them. You know what they did? They kept moving forward. Now, what should we want? We want the peace. We want peace. We must, as Paul said, we must implore everyone to be reconciled to God through faith in Christ, as Paul did the Corinthians. This should be our desire. We want people to come to Christ and for them to have the peace of Christ. Now, but at this point in our considerations, we must stop and ask one critical question. If Jesus came to bring both peace and a sword, what are they? What is that peace and what is that sword? Now, I have been hinting at it 
throughout the course of the sermon, but now I want to be a bit more specific. So here's the second observation. The peas and the sword are one and the same message. The peas and the sword are one and the same message. The paradox then is this. Both the peas and the sword are the fruit of the same message, the gospel of Jesus Christ. In other words, we have one gospel, yet it can yield two distinct results, peace and a sword. But the message never changes. The message never changes. It is one gospel. The apostles only knew one gospel of Jesus in which his death on the cross and his resurrection were put on display for all to see. They called men and women, boys and girls, to repent of their sins and to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. The only difference is in what this gospel did upon those who heard it. To some, it was peace. To others, it was a sword. But the message is one, the message is the same. Jesus crucified for sins and him risen from the dead. Isn't it amazing? I want you to think about this with me for a moment. God became a man in order to live, die, and rise again so that we might be forgiven of our sins and reconciled to God. Some people can listen to that message and say, praise God, I believe. While others will say, I want nothing to do with it. I hate it. Yet others remain in idolatry, such as the ones we see in Lystra in verses 8 through 13. Having left Iconium, they, Paul and Barnabas moved on to Lystra. There, God healed a crippled man through Paul. Seeing this, the Bible says the citizens of Lystra concluded that Paul and Barnabas were gods in the likeness of men, verse 11. They even gave them names. Paul was Zeus and Barnabas was Hermes, gods of Greek mythology. Now, that was a clear sign of darkness, a clear sign of darkness. Before this travesty, the Bible says Paul and Barnabas tore their garments as a sign of deep displeasure, and they preached a message concerning the true and living God. And the first thing that Paul and Barnabas did was to distance themselves from their idolatrous assumptions. They said, we are men like you. And then they said something very interesting in verse 15. And we bring you good news, Paul said to the people at Lystra, that you should turn from these vain things, meaning the idolatry, to a living God who made heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In other words, here's the good news, Paul says. Repent of your idolatry and turn to the true God. As you can see, it was already Paul's conviction that men do what with the truth? They suppress the truth in unrighteousness, as he says in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, and that they exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, Romans 1, 23. And then Paul supports what he says by saying that God, the true God, the living God, has never, this is an interesting statement, has never stopped witnessing concerning himself. How? Through ongoing provision 
rains from heaven and fruitful seasons. In essence, Paul's apologetic is as follows. The gods you worship don't exist. They are false. There is only one who has made himself known to all through general revelation. And this is the teaching that Paul will later develop in Romans chapter 1 in great doctrinal detail. But the people, uh, the people of Lystra were in darkness. And we read in verse 18, after Paul preached his sermon to them and told them, we are not gods, we are men like you, consider the true and living God. This is what they did, verse 18. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifices to them. The darkness was so thick in Lystra that in verse 19, we see the same people that were offering sacrifices. In verse 19, the same people, along with the Jews who came from Antioch and from Iconium, following, pursuing the apostles, stoning Paul. In God's providence, he survived and moved on to the city of Derby, which was their last city in their first journey. And they preached the gospel and they made disciples. So the crowds in Lystra literally went from, hey, let's worship them in verse 18, to, hey, let's kill them in verse 19. Why? Because one and the same message, the gospel of Jesus Christ, peace to some, a sword to others. But the question remains, why is this the case? Why do some come to faith? while others remain in darkness of unbelief and idolatry. Let's make it personal. Why are you here? Why are we represented by those who sided with the apostles and not by those who sided with the unbelievers? Let's work through that question by considering the third observation. The giving of peace and the wielding of the sword are the work of God alone. Go back to Iconium in verse 3 for a moment, and let's see what it says. So they, meaning Paul and Barnabas, remained at Iconium for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord. Notice this statement. Who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. Did you pay attention to verse 3, what it says? It's interesting. Who bore witness to the word of his grace? Paul and Barnabas, the Lord, the Lord. And how? By granting signs and wonders to be performed in his name by the apostles. My brothers and sisters, the ultimate witness to the truth is not us, but the Lord himself. We give the message, but only God does the saving or the dividing. The Lord bore witness to the word of his grace, and he granted the signs and the wonders. God does the witnessing concerning himself. Every time I speak, every time you speak the gospel, you know who's speaking? It's the Lord. It's the Lord. It is his word that goes out, not mine. Now, in Acts 14.3, the particular witness had to do with visible signs and wonders, wonders which God did through the apostles. God gave them the supernatural power to perform those signs and wonders, such as the healing of the crippled man in verse 10. But we need to understand something about signs and wonders. Signs and wonders. 
throughout the Bible, how many signs and wonders do we see? They are all over the place. Sometimes signs and wonders are used by God to bring people to himself. At other times, however, the same signs and the same wonders lead others to further unbelief or idolatry. If you don't believe me, just consider what happened in Egypt with the plagues. The Egyptians saw the signs, the Egyptians saw the wonders, yet they remained in the darkness of unbelief and idolatry, just like the crowds at Lystra and the religious leaders of Israel. The signs performed by Jesus before and later on by the apostles only served to harden them even more against Jesus. How in the world does that happen? Same signs, same gospel, opposite results peace, and a sword. Why? Well, let me show you what I think is the definitive answer. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And I want us to consider what it says in verses 22, 23, and 24. Now remember the question. Same gospel, same signs, same wonders, yet for others, for some, it is peace. For others, they remain in their darkness. What is the answer? Why does that happen? Why are you here and not in the world, hating the gospel but loving it? Consider 1 Corinthians 1, 22 through 24. For the Jews demand what? Signs. And Greeks or Gentiles, non-Jews, seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. Consider this, a stumbling block to Jews. And we're seeing this in Acts 14. And folly to Gentiles. And then what? You can read it out loud. Feel free. I love this one. Oh, let's say it together. But to those who are called. That's it. I, I, I see no other way of explaining this. Let's go back to verse 23. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Gentiles or Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, why do you love the gospel? Why do we see in Acts 14 the same message yielding opposite results peace to some and a sword to others? Why is it that the same gospel, the same gospel is a stumbling block and folly to some, but the power and the wisdom of God to others? Three words, God's effectual call. And that's where it ends. And that's where it begins. Whether the gospel or signs in this case lead to faith or unbelief is up to God. The only difference between believers and unbelievers is this. Believers, Christians, were effectually called by God to himself, which is manifested through actual faith in Jesus. As the gospel call goes forth externally into all ears, God calls internally his own. And when God calls, guess what? People come. 
when I call, <laughs> no one comes, all right? But when God calls, they come. So here's the fourth observation. The consequences of our message, the consequences of our message are not up to us. This, my friends, is the most liberating doctrine for all. Consider Jesus' parable of the soils and the seed. The soil represents the human heart, and the seed represents the Word of God, the gospel. What is the point of that parable? The point of that parable, at least in part, is to teach us that what the Word does in each individual person depends on the condition in which the heart is. Just like the seed falling on the ground will yield fruit in accordance with the condition of the soil in which it falls. But as one pastor said once, which I loved what he said, the sower gets up in the morning, goes out, plants the seed, and then what does he do? He goes back to sleep. He plants the seed, goes, heads back home, and takes a nap. Why? Because the sower knows that it is not ultimately up to him to produce the fruit. He can prepare the soil, yes, but he cannot guarantee the end result. Likewise, the gospel of Jesus goes into all the world. It falls on different hearts. It is heard by different ears. But the fruit is never up to the messenger, but always up to God. And this is something that all ministers, all those who are engaged in the work of the ministry, must have clear in their minds. What happens as we teach, as we preach, as we apply the gospel of Jesus Christ, we must do so in utmost humility knowing that the power to change people's lives is not ours, but God's alone. This is crucial. Listen, if I believed differently, do you want to know the truth? Here's a confession. If I believed differently, there's no way I would be in the pulpit. Yeah, lots of weird faces looking at me. Huh? Yeah. When God told Moses to speak to the rock so that water would come out, Moses went just one step further, and he struck the rock with his staff. Consequently, God prohibited Moses from entering the promised land. What was his sin? What was his sin? This is his sin. He went beyond the word of God. Ministers are not about technique. I have no technique. I have no technique. Ministry is about obedience, not technique. We preach. The water that results from it is up to God. Having said that, those who are involved in ministry or ministering God's word to others, but especially elders who are tasked with keeping watch over people's souls, must take extra precautions. And this is my fifth and final observation from Acts 14, which may come a little bit of a surprise for you, but it is in the passage. What is the fifth observation? The role of elders is a critical one. The role of elders is a critical 
one. I will limit myself to just a few comments. In verse 23, in verse 23, elders are mentioned for the first time. Now, it won't be the last. Here, we are introduced to the role of elders, although no particular detail is given as to what they were supposed to do. That will come later on in the book. Verse 23 simply says, and when they, meaning Paul and Barnabas, when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. As Paul and Barnabas went on their first missionary journey, what did they do? They planted churches. They planted churches. And having done so, what did they immediately do? They appointed elders for each of these churches in each town that they visited. Now, here we begin to see clearly, brothers and sisters, that the ultimate goal of missions is the establishment of elder-led biblical churches. This should be the guiding principle and the main motive for engaging in missions. As you can see here, this was the apostolic practice. It was during my first, my very first trip to Guatemala that I immediately knew as we went to the home and we loved on those kids and they loved us back. I immediately knew the greatest need was for the establishment of a biblical church with qualified elders. And for this, we must continue to pray. But this lets us know that for Paul and Barnabas, the role of elders was and still is a critical one. A critical one. And notice also, this is what I really want to point out, how Acts introduces the role of elders in the context of the peace and the sword. I think that matters. I think that matters. According to the context of Acts 14, we know for sure that these churches were not planted in friendly environments. The opposite was true. They were surrounded by what? Very hostile people. I find it very interesting that this is is the context in which Luke mentions elders for the first time. So here is a, take it as a soft insight. One of the reasons why the elder must keep his house in order or at peace, as the Bible indicates elsewhere, is because if he doesn't, then ministry outside of the home could and often does slowly consume him. I am not saying that this is a hard and fast rule. Sometimes elders can become overwhelmed even when the home is at peace. But the general principle, I think, still stands. The elder must have his own home at peace because if the basic structure of his relationships, meaning his home, is not peaceful, then it is unlikely he will be able to endure the test of Christian ministry in which, as we are seeing, the peace and the sword often advance together. It is quite interesting when we think it from those terms. I think there is a message in this. Christian ministry, though rooted in the gospel of peace, can at times be full of turmoil. Therefore, peace must begin 
in his home because elders often go into the heat of the battle. Now, next week, we're going to get into that a little more in detail as we go into chapter 15. I hope you won't miss it. I think it's going to be a blessing for all. So what do we do with all this, with what we have heard? Much could be said, but I'm going to give you four points for you to take home and do some more meditation. Here's the first one. As we preach peace, be ready for battle. As we preach peace, be ready for battle. Notice verse 22. On their way back to the original place, Antioch in Syria, Paul and Barnabas visited all those cities and all those churches again to strengthen and to encourage the disciples to continue in the faith and to explain that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom. I believe the word tribulations in this context is a reference to persecution and trial, specifically the kind that comes because we speak truth. If you hold on to any truth, you will eventually find plenty of opposition, and we will see this clearly next week. Don't miss it, okay? Try to be here next week. I remember this brought to mind something that I said years ago while I was preaching from Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17, which is about the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. I remember, I, I don't know why I thought of this comment that I made, so I went back to it and I looked at it again. I said this, you don't pick up a sword to get into a tickle fight. That would be fatally strange. At a very fundamental level, when we think of a sword, we think of something sharp, something that can cut, something that can inflict pain, and something that can draw significant blood. With those general observations in mind, know this, if you are going to pick up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, you better be ready to do some damage and accept the consequences. I still agree. If you pay attention, the apostles never changed the gospel message to cater to the culture in order to avoid persecution or hostility. They never did. In fact, if they did, you know what would have happened? We would not be here. We would not be here. In other words, we are called to preach peace to the world through Christ, but not to make peace with the world. This was and it still is my biggest concern with the movement known as the seeker-sensitive movement. It is difficult for me not to see it as an attempt to make peace with the world by dulling down the sharpness of the sword of the gospel and make church more appealing to the flesh through entertainment. I can tell you this much. No martyr ever died for watering down the gospel message. Ironically, they died for preaching the peace of Christ. Why? And we're going to develop this more next week. Why? Because the carnal person, for the carnal person, the message that says you must believe in a crucified Jesus in order to be forgiven of your sins and reconciled to God, that message is nonsensical at best, offensive at worst. Thank God he can and he does change the heart. Number two, as we preach peace, be hopeful for salvation. Not only be ready for battle, but be hopeful for salvation. When does darkness become too much for God to be able to handle? Never. And that's the beauty of Acts 14. 
with all the persecution the apostles suffered, notice how the story ends in verse 27. When they arrived in Antioch of Syria and gathered this church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how God had opened a door to faith or of faith to the Gentiles. They declare, after all that persecution, they came together and they declare all that God had done. And what did God do? God saved people as the gospel was preached. As Jesus said in John chapter 6, verse 29, listen to what he says. This is the work of God. Are you ready? This is the work of God. What is the work of God? That you believe in him whom he has sent. What is the work of God? Faith. Because this is so, let us always, always be hopeful for salvation. It is the work of God. Number three, as we preach peace, be praying for leaders. Be praying for leaders. I mean both, for God to raise strong ones and for God to protect the ones you already have. Let me make a quick note on the importance, importance of church members for them to respect and to submit to their elders. You're going to like this. Turn to Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. I'm making a point here of the importance of church members to submit, to respect, to highly esteem their elders. Let's see why. Hebrews 13, verse 17. Notice this. Obey your leaders and submit to them. Notice that for. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Here's the point. Are you ready? Your submission and respect for your elders should be proportional to the magnitude of their task. That's what Hebrews is saying. Your respect and your submission to the elders should be proportional to the magnitude of their task. And how big is their task? As big as it gets. They are keeping watch over your souls. If you have no reason to believe your elders are engaging in willful, blatant, unbiblical practices or doctrines, then God's command for you is submission to them. Knowing this critical role of the elders to the local church, be mindful of how you think of your elders, how you deal with your elders, how you think of them. They have been placed over you in the Lord and for a reason. This is not a, a rebuke to anyone, but a reminder to us, to us all. So as we desire to see the progress of truth and peace in the world, remember those who are elders and the importance and heaviness of their work. And finally, as we preach peace, be thankful for Jesus. Should the world remain an enemy of the truth, and should the truth continue to divide, this truth will never change. And in this truth, we take final comfort. We have peace with God through and only through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray together. Father, we thank you for this truth. Thank you for 
the fact that it is your Spirit who does the work. Thank you for that freeing, liberating truth that ultimately the building up of the church is your work. We are here to preach. We are here to tell others to consider Christ Jesus dead on the cross and his resurrection. But the saving work belongs to you and to you alone. Thank you for the fact that we are here. We owe it all to you. We are here not because we were wiser than anyone else, more clever than anyone else, smarter than anyone else. We're here only because you had compassion and mercy on us. And now we know you through Christ by the power of the Spirit. Thank you for the light that you have shown in our hearts and for the ongoing work of the Spirit. And we pray that this work will continue into all the world. And in the meantime, use us, Lord, for that work. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.